1: Hi, this is Celia Cutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severn. This is Radio for Young Farmers, by Young Farmers, but I don't know who I'm interviewing, so you better introduce yourself.
2: Hi, this is Mary Moody. Hi, Severin. I'm over in Dubuque, Iowa.
1: Hi, Mary Moody. Nice to hear from you.
2: Thank you. Yeah, really great to talk with you again.
1: Well, welcome to Greenhorns Radio. I am thrilled to introduce Mary Moody. She's part of the Catholic Worker Movement and running a Catholic Worker. Well, complex. Maybe you can introduce yourself better.
2: Thanks. So um, about 15 years ago, my husband and I and a couple of our kids at that time started farm as a communal farm with just our family. And along the way, three other families have come along and joined us. And we grow food and raise animals and otherwise share life together on about 35 acres of land in southern Dubuque County on, in northeast Iowa. So will you explain a little bit the principles of the Catholic Worker
1: and where it came from and what that means for your life together?
2: Sure, I will. So the whole movement began in the Depression era, era, 29, 31, and it started as an urban movement in New York City and came to its name by the fact that the woman who is credited as being co-founder had had uh, significant spiritual conversion to Catholicism and was looking for a way to live that out in a practical way, not just from the pew in church. And so um, she began by... Um, serving the needs of those closest to her in the city and started houses of hospitality, soup lines and houses of hospitality and a newspaper that's still in publication in in New York City, speaking on behalf of laborers, uh, the jobless at that time and the poor, and then also helping to meet their needs. The other part of the vision was um, a back to the land movement that her co-founder, Peter Morin, called a green revolution. And it was um, pointing to the idea that there's no unemployment on the land, that everyone is able to offer labor, we all need to eat, there can be this great exchange of skills and work and shared living. And that part of the movement has not until just the last, um, oh, really 15 or 20 years been very much fulfilled. While there's about Oh, 150 or more Catholic worker houses of hospitality around the U.S. and even a few outside of this country the farm movement was much slower to get started, and we're one of three that's in Iowa and several that's in the Midwest, and you and I, Severin, met at the National Catholic Worker Farm Gathering a few weeks ago in Wisconsin, and we had people, you know, people from farms on both coasts of the states, and um, so we, uh, yeah, we come together, not necessarily all of us as Catholics, but people willing to work on the land, usually... uh of um, sharing spiritual journeys, whatever our orientations might be about those, and um, living on, and stewarding the land. Do you
1: want to talk a little bit about the gathering um, that we were at? I know it was the third gathering of the farm project of the Catholic, farmer pro- Catholic worker, worker Movement, um, do you want to talk a little bit about the Christian? Know that I know your meeting, the one that you
2: facilitated, was a part of? Yeah. So actually it was just the second, and we had the inaugural one two years ago. Because people do travel from across the country, it seemed less likely that they would take the time and the cost every year to do that. So we've decided to meet together as a collective every other year, and we kicked that off here in the Midwest, um, in Dubuque two years ago, and then our friends Barb, Cass, and Mike Miles up in Luck, Wisconsin, they put out the invitation to um, Catholic worker farmers and their friends from around the country to gather this year, and it was up in Luck, Wisconsin at um, a church grounds where we could all just eat and stay together and have great conversation, and um, people speak to us about their experiences in um, earth care and um, where they're coming from and where our future is with restorative agriculture and more permacultural practices and just smaller, more sustainable um, farming practices and just lots of opportunities for um, a real common tradition in the Catholic Worker Movement is roundtables. It's a decentralized movement, and in fact, there's no hierarchy amongst it. And so when we gather, it tends to be that people will throw out an idea of interest, and they'll just ask for conversation uh, around it. And so it's a great way to exchange ideas and experience and to sort of tackle problems and challenges and um, get to know one another, too. The, rel- the time we have together isn't all that great because we're, people are usually off either – you know, doing urban growing or on farm. But, um, we love to get together and hear what's, what's happening with each other when, when we meet. So it's nice to have that roundtable sort of um, that kind of discussion model that is all of our gatherings are about. So, yeah.
1: so what does it mean on a practical day-to-day basis to run a farm in an anarchist, voluntary,
2: autonomous, non-hierarchical <laughs> context? Well, for us, um, the eight of us who were here with six kids, you know, um, Rick and I had some time put in on the land, and so it means... You know, sharing wisdom from elders or those who are founders, giving a place for that to be offered to the community, as well as opportunity for um, people who are joining to bring their new ideas and initiatives and um, their questions and challenge, and then just working very much from a consensus model. Um, we probably aren't the most efficient farmers in some ways. We, we try to um, prevent problems from happening both in the ways we do things and the way we work with each other by, you know, talking things over and getting a plan and, and um, then having it be very collaborative. We just find that that's, you know, in the end that helps us to save time and projects move quickly and the season go, goes more smoothly. And so we um, are together in the mornings, um, five days of the week and that's formally we begin, we do begin in common prayer and then just planning the day during the season um, more um, specific planning about what needs to happen and who's going to head it up and then who else can offer support. You know, we really try to play best on People's, both what they like to do and what they do well, and then get with other people who want to learn or who, um, you know, just are happy to share in uh, whatever work needs to be done that day. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's a, I guess it's something of a more relational dynamic that we live here on the farm and, um, you know, really trying to let people give what they can give most joyfully and out of their best experience and, um, you know, everyone sharing in the grunt work, of course, and the hard work on the hot day (laughs) and that too. Um, But yeah, our our focus of really is, you know, growing a, a thriving community as much as the time and effort that we put into growing the food and sharing it with others and the education that happens on our farm too. We do a fair share of that as well.
1: So the next question I have is, it's intimidating for people who, even if they're attracted to a lot of the principles of being a Catholic worker, house of hospitality, direct service, nonviolence, civil disobedience, acts of mercy, works of, you know, working in cahoots with the poorest people in the world to make the world a place where it's easier to be good, even if they're totally up for that, the part of it that it's, that it's, Christian or faith-based um, seems to make some people allergic to the idea of being a part of it. But then it seems like more and more people, especially young people, who are coming from activist or kind of mission-based backgrounds are figuring out how to get over that and maybe and embracing the Christian part. Uh, maybe you watch that happen or can explain a little bit what that's like?
2: For sure I have um, severance. So we transitioned here from hospitality that we started in 1995 in downtown Dubuque. And so even longer than the period of time that we've been living here on the farm, we have been involved in the Midwest Catholic Worker Movement. And it's certainly the case that um, people who are atheist or Buddhist or of all stripes of Protestantism um, and or even agnostic are are finding a welcome home in the worker movement, especially on the farm, because they can join in um, the pursuit of simplicity of lifestyle, of the ethic of um, earth care and more sustainable living, and of service to others. And that just in, inherently has something, I believe, of a spiritual bent, but it doesn't have to have a religious connotation. And I think that most farms, our farms certainly. You know, we benefit from kind of having close alliance about our beliefs. And I think, you know, that lends some real strength to our particular community. Um, That is just sort of by happenstance of those of us who showed up here over time, honestly. Other places are able to set up like ritual or just practical ways of meeting and things where they can find close connection and get work done and make planning. Um, But, you know, there's definitely an understandable bad taste in people's mouths about faith-based initiatives or you know Christianity at all no we just don't have to look far to point to real strife and struggle that has been done in the name of all sorts of religious initiatives and it's a hard thing to to live um pa- to move past that you know it's a hard it's been a hard thing but i think maybe the catholic worker has done it especially as the transition has happened with lots of young people looking for a way that they can live um, differently than the mainstream options are finding the Catholic worker communities and farms are a hospitable place for them, and they don't have to necessarily espouse any particular belief system. They just need to somehow find a way to live peaceably within the framework of that community and what it's about and what is really most valued by it. So let's talk about
1: communitarian the benefits of communitarianism in activism, and what makes it a more resilient configuration for human settlement, just practically as well as spiritually.
2: Yeah, you know, um, are you thinking of anything in particular relative to what you know about the Catholic Worker Movement or just kind of generally my experience of that? Well, yesterday I toured
1: around the Zen Center at Green Gulch Farm, which is a Buddhist farm, My friend is the farm manager there, and he's um, right now he's the head monk, so I couldn't even talk to him because he had to be in the study hours. But um, that place, I felt, was working as a communitarian land-based settlement so much because everybody is taking time to be in practice and and doing their spiritual work and communicating properly and intentional about what decisions they're making.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: I... I I don't know. I mean, I'm a punk and I'm an activist and I'm a farmer and I'm independent minded and I'm stubborn. So, you know uh-huh. and I know there's a lot of people who are like me in agriculture and I and I um I recognize that the family farm idea, yeah, a lot of it is found up in a nineteenth century settlement pioneer autonomous liberty. I also recognize that so much of the recombinant and settling into a place we have to be accommodating in the long term has to be predicated on a different way of communicating with each other and interacting with that place and a more collaborative pattern. And I'm recognizing that these faith communities are, in so many ways, better able to... Manage the communicational, the communication and interpersonal uh, dynamics that allow for that m- more dense, more collaborative, more communicative form of yeah. settlement. And so yeah. that's the basic. I don't know. I'm still a baby. I'm a kindergartner, but I'm noticing.
2: Mm, Yeah. No, there are really exciting things happening that particular members of our community have um, taken opportunity to learn more about. Um, Eric and Brenna and I especially have been really interested in studying um, the work of a couple of guys. One of them is Marshall Rosenberg, and he's pretty well known, actually. He's Done a lot of, and other people have done a lot of publishing about his work on nonviolent communication, and then um, Brennan, Eric, and I, and um, my daughter went down to Missouri to a farm called the Possibility Alliance, a community farm, to um, study with Dominic Barter in. Um, Conflict resolution and restorative circles and we brought back to our community and they were really interested in having these skills and for us trying to practice these ways of communicating, which, um, yeah, just make for a real ease of lifestyle amongst us, trying to live and work well together. And just, um, you know, sometimes when you're part of a community, it can be pretty difficult to make time for growing self-awareness. But of course, that's what I believe. I think we all need more (laughs) more of, for starters. I mean, I I think um, our blind spots are always pointed out best. They're shown upon by our community members. So, you know, we we go off and we learn in our off seasons, especially we learn, uh, you know, and study about things that then we can um, bring back to the community just to make our life here more sustainable. I mean, we have to be able to, we really believe that living and working together is what can, um, is a great model. And, you know, it allows for personal and family differences. So when someone is ill or someone's having a baby or, you know the work doesn't have to stop and people give as they can and they step back as they need and and all of these way all of these things can only happen though if we're co- always growing in relationship to one another and feeling really committed to one another not not just to the work um but to one another in um sharing the work and the life together and so um that's, we really work, we really work hard on that. We, um, it's, and the, you know, the more we, each of us do our own work, of course, then the less work it tends to be for everyone, but we have a weekly ritual of reconciliation. It's sort of fashioned after one of the Catholic sacraments, but it's a, just a way of clearing grievances. And, and not only that, it's also an opportunity to just get us thinking about what each one brings and gives. It's, we offer apologies, and um, we share grievances, and then we um, also offer affirmations. And it just is a way to really keep week to week our community healthy and whole. And, and you know that if something's come up in the week that's really teed you off about what has happened or not happened with someone or with the situation that, you know, Friday you get the chance to either decide, oh, it was really nothing, you were just having a bad day, or this is something that I want to clear with someone and so that, you know, I can keep growing in relationship. And that's just part of our community dynamic. We think that if we want to keep doing this thing on the land together, then we have to keep growing in relationship and so that has to take some time and attention too. So we that's part of our our farm work, you should I I guess I would say <laughs> So this truth and reconciliation process
1: that was invented by many people simultaneously around the world, recognizing that humans
2: need yeah. to forgive
1: in order to move forward,
2: Yeah.
1: how did that square with the indignation of injustice?
2: Um, for, for us as a community, like within our community... Yeah, within your community, but also as a faith
1: group, you know, you guys are working in charity against the injustices of, the, of you know, global capitalism and the continuing violence, and I just yeah. wonder how, I don't know, how does that, how do you integrate those, yeah. those two sentiments of working for justice, operating out of a set of principles of justice that seem to be really incompatible with the way quote-unquote the world works?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm
1: and being able to survive.
2: Yeah, you know, I think really important to us, too, and you mentioned it earlier, Severin, is the arm of the Catholic worker about activism and about, um, you know, civil disobedience and either um, resistance through non-participation or, um, you know, also active protest and civil disobedience. And, and in fact, um, each spring time... um, the Midwest Catholic workers have um, a topic or some kind of theme of, of urgent interest that we gather around for a resistance retreat and then proposed action. And this year people are gathering down in St. Louis with the Catholic workers there specifically because of the um, police brutality and the, the murders that have happened at the hands of police officers down in Ferguson and around there. And, you know, it's a way um, yeah, it's a way that we, even as we try to keep peace amongst ourselves, we also try to um, confront the issues of social injustice, and in our, you know, our own farm also has been about addressing issues of food equity and security, even in our own, you know, Dubuque um, community and town. And we continue to grow and give food away to a shelter in town and. Um, it's yeah, yeah, I um, I don't have a really great head answer for that, <laughs> yeah, well,
1: I know it's hard to have an answer to that, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah,
1: but um so I know you guys have been working on embodying some of that peaceful truce-making internally as a community, but also across generations and thinking about land succession and farmland transfer and just the, the, the faith in the future that needs to be a, reminded, a reminder in that process. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the poet laureate who's coming there um, and your work organizing that.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah, um, I had personal interest having met Mary Swander about five years ago. She, during the last ten years, has written three different plays, and one of them was a readers' theater. And in fact, Rick and I um, were a part of that, and it was called Farmscape. Mary is a, a English professor at Iowa State University, and she lives in Kelowna, an Amish community nearby there. And she's an author and poet and a Playwright, as I said, this year, she, this past year, she was studying the issue of um, land transfer, agricultural land transfer in Iowa specifically, but within our country. And I know this is an issue that you're becoming more and more aware of, too, Severin. But the um, the change of hands, the land swap that's going to happen just because of the age of our um, Iowa farmers is tremendous. And you know, th- these are not small consequences when decisions like this are made for families to let go of land to whatever other sort of development besides being able to to grow food on it and um you know there's just um beginning to be um some really um a, i would say a real footing here in Iowa it's kind of coming from the south and from the north of our driftless area an interest of smaller scale, sustainable farmers of this next generation that your your Greenhorns people embody, and it's um, Mary is a, is trying to take the urgency of the moment of this this um, succession of land that's going to transpire, to bring um, young voices into it, to bring in awareness, uh, to build relationship between um, landed farm owners who will be making significant decisions about future land use and the young people who have ideas about um, carrying on in an, a, a kind of a newer sort of agricultural paradigm for Iowa. It, um, and so Mary is bringing um, her play to performance. The first time it'll appear in Northeast Iowa. She's been in the fall. She was down in Central and Western Iowa in different communities. The play will be performed here, and then there'll be a talk back session with the actors, Um, On Thursday, March 26th, the following day, we're partnering with um, the Iowa State University-Dubuque County Extension Outreach and Education to have a letter writing, uh, a farm letter legacy writing workshop. It's a very, very powerful tool for helping landowners to um, think about and express the value of their land through the experiences they've had, not just um, for the maybe the, the male farmer himself, but for the wife, for extended family, for children who were raised there, and to really put them in touch with that place in a different way than they might be now or might ever have been. And it also brings open um, many issues about how they would like for that to be stewarded going forward. And... Um, then that allows for opportunity for other voices, other roles, other actors to come in to help have that happen. And so we're really excited. This play is going to show on a Thursday night. Then Friday the next day, um, Teresa Oppheim from the Practical Farmers of Iowa is coming to provide the workshop. We're our, we've um, got a number of registrations from the tri-state area now, and I'm really excited to see that, um, you know, this may be shaping a different way of um, land use for our state going forward for the next generation and generations to come. Like I said, these land use decisions can be quite um, somewhat final, um, depending upon the choices that are made. And so um, I'm really excited that the conversation is going to happen and the awareness on individuals, but also in our community part is going to be happening here just in, in another couple of weeks. So. Mm -hmm. And in
1: Iowa, this is happening faster, do you think, than in other places? I know that in Iowa, about 61% of the land is owned or co-owned by women, and that a lot Mm -hmm. of those women are widowed or, um, you know, a little bit older than my mom, and Uh trying to figure out decisions about leasing and stewardship and legacy planning. Um, Yes. Can you maybe a little explain the factors that are at play In Iowa, and how that maybe compares to other regions,
2: and particularly when it
1: comes to... Yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, just broadly, I think anyone who travels through on 80, that's most people's exposure to the Iowa landscape, and, you know, Barbara Kingsolver wrote about it so beautifully on a a trip with her daughter, you know, you see... um, the monoculture that's been created across our landscape here. And be, somewhat because of, um, you know, the geography, the topography itself, um, other pressures have come to bear as far as, um, you know, um, the interest in commodity farming and the subsidies and the, the economic structures that were set up to make that so successful. Um, y- y- um, the The two edges east and west of the two boundaries of the state tend to be a little bit different because of being along the mississippi and the missouri rivers where the landscape isn't quite so well suited to the large-scale farming that you'll see toward the central belt of our farm or of our our state and you know that tends to be where um you know, some of the newer farming initiatives are are beginning because they're they're better suited to smaller um, enterprises, smaller scale animal, um, animal husbandry or smaller scale um, vegetable growing, things like this. Um, renewal of the orcharding that was so prevalent in our state at one time and things. And, you know, the Seed Savers Exchange has been critical in um, some of this renewal. Just to let people know about what food used to be grown here and why it isn't anymore. And, um, I guess, um, yeah, you know, it's, um, generations upon generations of what people have known, um, I guess weren't really challenged because they seem to be working well enough. And now, air and water and soil, just like is happening in other place. That's not different regionally, but, um, you know, it's come to be, it's becoming more of a bother than at earlier points. And it's beginning to, to matter to people just through broader education. And when it, at one point it was just felt to be kind of the cost of doing business. And people aren't willing to say that anymore, just in the name of, you know, the tall corn state. And so people's attitudes and, um, values are changing and, um, slowly but surely, um, You know, even the oldest generations of farmers are seeing that something new can can happen, different different than what they knew. Um, It doesn't have to necessarily demean what has been their um, life's craft, but they can imagine the value of a shift. And um, I'm going to segue just a little bit into my work for having started the Dubuque Food Co-op and serving on the board for that, because I've been in lots of conversations there with. older farm farm folks whose children had convinced them to become members of the co-op when we were going to get it started. You know, you start by just getting shares and trying to get a nest egg of money to then go to the bank and say we need a bunch of money to open this grocery store. And I had many, many conversations with farm folks who said, oh, I've never even been in a co-op, but my kids are telling me that this is a good thing and that, that you know, we want this. And so they... Um, younger generations are influencing the the values, they're educating the parents and the grandparents about these things and um that's the best way it can happen, I think. <laughs> I think that's rather than anybody subsidizing this happening for, for young younger people to be saying this is what we want and this is better for us and for the older folk to be open to that um wisdom is just a beautiful thing. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and committing to engaging with the problems and the complications yes. and the logistics and the legacy planning and the paperwork and the accounting and the taxes in a loving yes. way.
2: Yes. But
1: mm-hmm. a friend of mine mm-hmm. did a really interesting GIS project mapping uh, FEMA payments, uh, you know, um, emergency flooding, um, and then an infrastructure redevelopment costs from flooding with crop subsidies in order to show how our subsidized insurance and subsidized crop policy is leading to devastating flooding. In the case of Iowa, everyone's installing, has installed, the whole place is completely wall-to-wall drained,
2: mm. which mm-hmm. means that
1: when, when rain falls, it shoots off the fields into the ditches and overwhelms mm. the infrastructure. Um, You know, and we're spending billions of dollars backing through subsidized insurance, a system of agronomy that is completely incompatible with changing weather patterns. And I know that, you know, we're talking about what are the factors that are leading to changing values. And I've been watching with quite a lot of interest this lawsuit where Des Moines, Iowa, is suing its upstream counties for water contamination. So, Mm -hmm. on a very local level... This connection is made, uh, holding accountable counties who you know feel like they have the quote unquote right to farm however they choose, and saying, "Well, agriculture is exempt from many of the regulations that confine industry or that regulate industry." Uh, you know, clean water and clean air among them, and mm-hmm. saying, "Hey, no, you are accountable, and we need to really be more thoughtful in our." Um, in our design of these systems because it has a lot of costs for downstream users.
2: So yeah, and they should be like counted, right? These things are yeah. coming to a head. Oops, your turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, even more recently than that, um, uh, Severin, just in the last couple of days, there's been some real backlash because um, the Republican House in, at the state uh, level here in Iowa is proposing legislation about letting um, uh, pork producers... Uh, hum, uh, manure management plans be they wouldn't have to be publicized anymore so neighbors and counties wouldn't have access to what their plans were for those and there's, um, yeah it's starting to matter, people are starting to engage in the process and um, you know, take opportunity to safeguard against uh, the contamination, like you said, of our air and water and um, this is all of our legacy, our common legacy right, I've, I've heard you say before and people are starting to um, Engage in ownership more, more so, and it's a good, it's a good, powerful thing. So,
1: you have stuff coming up, you have events coming up, you have ongoing workshops and public days, and a lot of engagement and work. What, um, what's your recommendation to some young people who are kind of interested and intrigued by getting involved in more of a spirit, spirit communities or? committing Mm -hmm. to deeper work, deepening their work, um, not only in agriculture, but also in social activism. What would be some first few steps that you could recommend for our listeners?
2: Well, um, my first recommendation comes from experience myself, in that there just cultivate the relationships with those who can support what your dream is, and um you know, we were able to get no interest loans on our land purchase and, and our house construction because we just um found people who we thought would were friendly to our ideals. We built relationship with them over a relatively short period of time and then we were able to launch our farm project. And and there are there are those people. It's um I think Asking around um, circles of friends and in your communities, you'll find who those are. You all use the, the social media so very, very well and can find out organizations that can point you there. It's um, it's just all about relationship and the synergy that happens when people of like mind and heart come together to do this. It's um, I Yeah, it sounds sort of cliche or maybe over-romanticized, but I really um Believe in the power of the exchange of stories to get uh, to renew our land. I just really believe in it and um, you know inviting people to 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 hear what your dream is and um, you know uh, um, and yeah with with understanding where we've come from too, I think is important I think it's um, It's there's a great circle. a great circle happening. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Now is the time. So to learn more about the Catholic farm movement, um, Catholic worker movement, there's a book called Ways and Means. Is that it? No, aims and means.
2: Mm -hmm. The aims and means, yeah.
1: Aims and means by Dorothy Day. That explains a little bit. You know, what is the house of hospitality? Why does the house of hospitality matter? Mm -hmm. What are the some of the kind of core principles that people a little bit have been working along? And yeah. I thank you, Mary Moody, for joining us on this fast-paced information exchange.
2: Thanks for the invite, Severin. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you. <laughs>
1: Happy St. Patrick's to you and to everyone who's listening. Please know we've got big time screenings at the Browser Center tonight on um, uh, land transfer. It's an hour land screening. Panna um, Ranch and Brookford Almanac tonight and tomorrow night. It's a doubleheader. And um, really wonderful panelists. Then there's the San Luis Obispo Grange, the Ojai Grange, um, and Grange Farm Tour continues up into Oregon. Uh, we've got now eight Granges signed up for the Grange Tour in Oregon. I have also some interesting tour mojo in Maine. I'm looking for three, three women at least, and maybe some other some men as well, in order to run a Grange tour, we need three committed humans. So if that might be you, get in touch. Office at thegreenhorns.net. Thank you all so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network.